Peace, We Build It is a podcast about the Alliance for Peacebuilding and its network of over 130 organizations working globally in 181 countries to reduce and prevent violent conflict and build sustainable peace. Host Tanya Domi will interview AFP's global partners, expert guests, and policy advocates on how they tackle the challenging work of conflict prevention and peace building in a world riddled by increasing violent conflict and more. My name is Liz Hume, and I'm the executive director of the Alliance for Peacebuilding. And I will be hosting this episode of the Peace We Build It podcast today. If you've listened to our podcast before, you know that Tanya Domi is the host of this podcast. But I'm going to do it today because we need to interview Tanya because she is an expert on the topic of sexual violence and war. So on behalf of the Alliance Peacebuilding, I want to welcome our distinguished guests to Peace We Build It. The Russian army in Ukraine is using rape as a weapon of war by targeting Ukrainian women and girls. And there have also been reports of men and boys being raped. The crime of rape is not new during war, but what is different this time is that these atrocities are garnering heightened visibility in the media and data is tracking these crimes in real time. The Alliance for Peacebuilding, within the first few days of the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February, put out a global call to action urging donors to fund the documentation of human rights violations, including sexual violence. The gathering and submission of real-time evidence in Ukraine will play a vital role in prosecuting those responsible. What is also different is that these horrific crimes have been very early on condemned by the Ukrainian government, the International Criminal Court prosecutor, the United Nations, European institutions, the United States, and other Western allies. However, even with resources and attention, will these crimes be fully prosecuted? Unfortunately, the track record on prosecutions of rapes committed during conflict is weak. Nearly 25 years ago, an estimated 20,000 rapes were committed against Kosovar women by Serbian military and police. And to date, there has only been one prosecution. Our distinguished guests today will discuss the tragedy of rape as a weapon of war in Ukraine, what can be done to stop it, both inside and outside of Ukraine, and how to bring those responsible to justice. They'll also focus on what European institutions, the U.S., and other institutions like the ICC can effectively do to ensure justice for victims in Ukraine, and also how do we prevent it from happening again in the next conflict. So I'm very pleased to introduce Irina Benediktova, the state prosecutor of Ukraine. She took office in March 2020, and she is the first woman in Ukraine's history to hold this office. I first want to say that we are all so deeply sorry for the unjustified war in Ukraine and greatly admire the courage and strength of the people of Ukraine. And we stand with you. But what is happening in Ukraine is beyond horrific. We see the death and destruction being reported out of Ukraine every day. But one atrocity since the invasion that is gaining significant attention by media is rape of Ukrainian women and girls by Russian soldiers. Additionally, this year, the ICC prosecutor said he was expanding the inquiry in Ukraine to include rapes that occurred during the annexation 
of Crimea in 2013 as well. So Madam Prosecutor, it's also been reported that your office has opened investigations into more than 8,000 criminal investigations related to the war, and you've identified over 500 suspects, including Russian ministers and military commanders. Can you tell us specifically what your office is doing to address the fact that rape is being used as a weapon of war? And what do you need to be successful? Thank you very much uh, for this possibility to speak on your platform. First of all, I would like to start by expressing my appreciation for the attention to this oversensitive topic. Raising awareness and talking loudly about the atrocities that are ongoing in Ukraine daily and hourly since 2014, and especially since the 24th of February, is a matter of great importance. Now we live more than 100 days in a very brutal, very aggressive war. Just to provide insight into the current situation, to date we already have initiated more than 17,700 criminal cases. Tomorrow you will see on our website this number more. It will every day it's like, you know, 200, 300 cases extra, unfortunately. Officially confirmed the deaths of over 5,500 civilians, among them 318 children. All regions of Ukraine are mercilessly bombed under missiles attack or artillery fire regularly. We were with Prosecutor Karim Khan uh, two days ago in Kharkiv, and actually when we go out from city, uh, we heard very good these sounds of shelling. Unfortunately, besides this, conflict-related sexual violence is becoming the predominant method of warfare for Russian forces. Rape as a means of terrorizing enemy civilian population and demoralizing enemy troops cannot be seen as a not an unavoidable consequence of war. It is a separate war crime which is expressly prohibited by the Geneva Convention. From the first days of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, we have received reports on sexual violence from different regions. This situation became more devastating after the liberation of northern Ukraine. Sexual violence in war has catastrophic consequences not only for adults but for children as well. Law enforcement agencies have documented facts of the rape of women and minors and I feel compelled to tell about this on all fronts. We speak about these concrete possibilities, uh, what we uh, have uh, do here on the ground. Actually, it's critical to note that every information or report regarding the alleged facts of sexual violence, including rape, trigger initiation of the criminal investigation, and as such, falling under direct supervision uh, in my office. Let me also briefly touch upon our approaches with respect to investigation of sexual violence and treatment of the survivors. To begin with the continuously monitor reports in the media and social resources as any open source could serve as a basic for us to initiate investigation. My office has established a hotline through which everyone can report a crime and provide available information. 
we have specialized war crimes department that not only investigates war crimes, but also oversees investigation of war crimes by district prosecutors that allows holistic approach in line with the international law obligation. Even prior to Russian aggression, we have been keen implementation of gender-sensitive approaches in course of investigation. In addition, we have sought assistance from the international experts specialized on sexual and gender-based violence through recently established atrocity crimes advisory group that, along with our national colleagues, prepared internal training guides that first define rape and anti-sexual violence as a war crime and violation of international humanitarian law, as well as second, prescribe how to particularly implement gender-sensitive approaches in course of investigative activities. For example, taking testimony of the survivor or witnesses. We are familiar with the Murat Code and planning to incorporate its principles in the work of prosecutors through the training guidelines I have just mentioned. We do recognize that there is a certain stigma within society with respect to rape and sexual violence that could prevent survivors from being open regarding this incident being hesitant to report or cooperate with the law enforcement authorities. Therefore, we established cooperation with healthcare institutions and actively cooperate with NGOs in order to timely identify and record cases of sexual or other types of violence against women or children. In addition, we are discussing with our partners and international organizations potential initiatives, measures that could be helpful in overcoming the existing barrier about the survivors. Indeed, Prosecutor Han of the International Criminal Court has extended jurisdiction of the investigation with respect to the events stemming from the annexation of Crimea and occupation of eastern regions of Ukraine. As we close uh, cooperate, my office will provide information on the investigations and prosecutions related to that region of the Office of the Prosecutor upon their request. With respect to the 2014 events, there have been certain allegations of rape as form of torture being used in eastern Ukraine that is a subject matter of domestic investigation. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for correcting me. 14,000 cases have opened. Now, even during a time of peace, this would be extremely difficult for the most peaceful country. How are you doing this in a time of war? And what resources do you need from the international community? Actually, from the first days of war, we understand that it could be a very long process and we should do everything correct from the first days and we prepare this strategy. I spoke with um, a big number of prosecutor general of other countries. I spoke with the um, president of Yevrajas Vladislav Sandran, and we uh, decided that our international front, international judicial front, is very, very important. And uh, of course, now we have several approaches. First approach it is our national jurisdiction and our job on the ground to collect together all evidences what we can have. Again, you see that every day we will have more and more cases and we should be ready 
to investigate it properly. Of course, we do prioritization. It's impossible to investigate everything without access to territory, without access to people. That's why we have this prioritization. In the national jurisdictions on the ground, uh, we have a huge number of investigators of national police, security service of Ukraine, and even from other law enforcement agencies. For example, State Bureau of Investigation, National Anti-Corruption Bureau, all these people on the ground too, because when the Kiev region was deoccupied, we need huge resources, human resources. Now we uh, have uh, six sentences in the court and uh, eight cases in the court. That's why we are successful in the level of uh, national jurisdiction. Then our international lives. 18 lines, sorry, uh, 18 states started their own investigations, which are connected with war crimes in Ukraine. Uh, we pre created joint investigation team on the platform of Eurojust, uh, Ukraine, Lithuania, Poland, Estonia, Slovakia, and Latvia are the members of this joint investigation team. Internet Office of Prosecutor of International Criminal Court joined this investigation team. Actually, it was firstly in the history of ICC. And now we have the most wide joint investigation team, uh, I think, which ever have been uh, on the platform of Eurojust. We have our partners on the ground. The Lithuanian team was in Kharkiv region. Slovakian team was twice in Ukraine. French team worked in the Kyiv region and in Chernigov region. The team of prosecutor of International Criminal Court here long period of time, and even they decided to open their field office here. It's very important, actually. That's why we understand that um, we should investigate properly not only war crimes, but as pocket ordinary crimes, what could be committed in Ukraine. And actually, it's very important for us too, because the safety of our citizens, the normal order in our states, it's very important. And we should coordinate all this activity. And we do it. We are going to court with other cases, not only if we speak about war crimes. And uh, we see that uh, we have very trained service, we have very trained team. We finished a reform of prosecutor service um, during previous two years. We reattested, reboost all system, all level of prosecutor service were reformed. And actually, maybe we have such a good result because people are professional, people are trained, and people are patriotic. Thank you for detailing the work that you're doing. I am just going to say, we know, though, how much work this is. And the resources are vital to make sure that the data is collected. So if there are donors listening, I want to be very clear that this all will take significant resources. So I, I want to make sure that that's front and center. Um, Madam Prosecutor, will you be prosecuting these crimes in Ukraine? Do you suspect or do you think that the ICC will be taking on a lot of these cases and how will you coordinate? We understand that the most part of the job should do our law enforcement agencies on the ground. More than 90% cases we should investigate and we should do in our Ukrainian force. Very important. 
but the um, role of ICC it's actually significant and I am uh, happy and as a citizen of Ukraine and as a prosecutor of Ukraine that we can have such a cooperation with the team of prosecutor of International Criminal Court. Now he came to Ukraine third time. He was um, first time he came on the third of March. Then he came when Bucham was deoccupied, and now he came and looked in Kharkiv region what is going on in Kharkiv region, actually. For us, very important this um, cooperation. We are closely collaborating with the International Criminal Court states involved in joint investigation team, as well as the third state investigating war crimes through universal jurisdiction. Let me start with the International Criminal Court is a complementary mechanism to domestic proceedings. Ukraine has recently adopted the legal amendment that establishes the legal framework for the cooperation with the ICC. This is an important achievement that allows us to deepen working relationship with the ICC, assisting them in the investigation. We understand that the national proceeding could be hindered due to personal immunity enjoyed by certain incumbent high-level officials, whereas the ICC is not restricted in similar manner. Hence, this is one group of cases where the ICC could have jurisdiction. Secondly, the investigation team has been present in Ukraine on several occasions, and we trust that this cooperation will yield results already in the nearest future with respect to specific incidents. Let me also know that we follow closely development before the International Court of Justice and the European Court of Human Rights. My office will stand ready to provide any information and evidence is deemed necessary. Similarly, we are cooperating with the UN Human Rights Council Commission of inquiry in Ukraine and already expressed readiness to provide information to the local team on the ground just two days ago. Turning to joint investigation team composed of uh, Ukraine, Lithuania, Poland, Estonia, Latvia, and Slovakia, with the assistance of Eurojust, where the Office of the Prosecutor of the ICC is present as a participant, we view it as an effective mechanism not only to gather information and evidence, but also to coordinate proceedings. Furthermore, as I mentioned, 18 national jurisdictions initiated criminal proceedings regarding international crimes taking place in Ukraine. We believe that prosecution in third states under universal jurisdictions would be priority if the perpetrator is present within the state or has her assets there and interests of justice so dictate, for example, when the evidence is available in the third state or group of victims are present there. So can you tell us what does the hierarchy of justice look like? We know that there's interest by several countries want to prosecute Russian forces, including its leadership, all the way up to Vladimir Putin for these crimes. Are you confident that eventually those who have committed these atrocities will be prosecuted? This is our main uh, goal, I think, for absolutely whole prosecutor in the whole world, civilized world. It is uh, accountability and justice, and of course, uh, investigators and uh, prosecutors do their job to 
find all evidences to prove for uh, guilty of uh, perpetrators and then to have fair open public court public trial to take all people from responsibility that's why of course we do our job understanding that uh, it will be long and pre-trial processes now as i mentioned we have six sentences and eight cases in the court but we have 114 uh, persons who are suspects we started them prosecute in war crime and from in other case in our anchor case about crime of aggression we have 623 suspects in this case and we started to prosecute them too that's why we are moving forward we have our roadmap we have our strategy of investigation and our internal strategy in the uh, measures of PPRN and our international strategy with joint investigation team with cooperation of international criminal court. So thank you, Madam Prosecutor. And I just want to say once again, you know, there are no words for what your country is going through. And I know that everyone on this podcast will be working with you to make sure that these crimes are prosecuted. So no other country has to experience this. I just want to ask you if there's anything else that you want us to know about what we could be doing to support you. Thank you very much for these warm words. Um, it, uh, you know, when you live in war, it's absolutely other level of values, these human relations. For us, a very important and um, professional support when we have experts, investigators, all other professionals on the ground. A very important job of journalists from all other countries because they are citizens of civilized countries and they can see and can do their own uh, results and consequences of what's going on actually in Ukraine. We want to be open country. We do everything um, and fight for our values, for our choice, what we have done in 2014. That's why your support in all levels, your voice about Ukraine are very important for us. And I appreciate very much for this possibility to speak. And actually, you mentioned about these first minutes of our conversation that's very important to strong this aggression and maybe have done some conclusions. Here we have very experienced persons in such um, war crimes and crimes of aggression and which have and expertise and their own uh, life in in such circumstances that's why i think for us very important to prevent such possible aggressions in other countries and prevent to you know existing dictators uh, regimes which can start such brutal and aggressive activity on the land of other countries or in their countries and we should do everything to protect human rights to prevent such barbarian atrocities. And I just also want to say to you and the people of Ukraine, thank you for reminding the world, as we've seen backsliding in democracy, how important it is to fight for democracy. And uh, thank you for leading the world and showing us 
how important this is as well. Our second guest is Dunya Mitovich, who was elected as the Commissioner for Human Rights in January 2018 by the Council of Europe Parliamentary Assembly. So Dunya, you recently visited Ukraine and Kosovo. Kosovo women have had very little access to the justice system in addressing the 20,000 estimated rapes by the Serb military during the 1998-1999 war in Kosovo. So what did Kosovo women survivors and their advocates tell you about what is needed to achieve justice for these cases? Thank you, first of all, for inviting me to take part in this uh, podcast uh, about a topic uh, that is uh, extremely important for all of us, for the societies as a, as a whole, for, for the world, um, because we said many times, never again, and you said it also in your introduction. But then I ask myself when I see what's happening in Ukraine to Ukrainian women and girls, but men as well, is something that um, you know leaves and opens uh, even more questions. In which direction are we heading and uh, where are we failing um, in, in a way globally uh, in order to prevent uh, such a horrific crimes? I returned from, from Ukraine recently, immediately after that I went to Kosovo discussing many human rights uh, issues, but including uh, also the topic we are discussing today. Already in Ukraine, I, I heard reports uh, about uh, sexual violence, uh, rapes, but not only in Ukraine. Uh, I went uh, at the beginning uh, of this horrific uh, war and aggression to uh, the border with Ukraine, where mostly women and girls were leaving, and there were already reported cases of rape. When it comes to uh, my recent trip to Kosovo, that is something that we are facing for decades in the Western Balkans. When I say we, I, I'm thinking of the Western Balkans, the part of the world that I come from. And if it was not for Kosovo uh, women and their courage to say not, you know, in our name, you will not put under the carpet all these crimes, not even this one case that is investigated uh, would happen. It is absolutely essential that we break a silence uh, on sexual violence, whether you know it is in times of peace uh, or war. And it is absolutely necessary to create uh, the right conditions for victims to speak out. And this is also an issue I, I discussed with Irina uh, when I was in Kiev, how to make sure that everyone uh, must be able to feel safe and empowered to denounce these uh, you know, hor horrific crimes and survivors also must feel free to come forward. So even after decades of war um, in Kosovo, but also decades of war that happened in former Yugoslavia, you still have this stigma, fear, uh, and people are not ready or they do not feel safe. Uh, they do not trust the system, to put it uh, uh, this way, in order to come forward, in order to start talking about their cases and the horror that they went through. So I think we have a particular responsibility now to help Ukrainians even more with all the experience, with lessons learned, with mistakes made in the process in order to be sure that those crimes will be investigated in the right way, but at the same time, making sure that they are exposed, but not to overexpose it in order to victimize the victims over and over again. 
because this is not about headlines. This is about investigating serious crimes. And uh, that's why I'm also working in order to see more coordination and also more assistance in psychosocial trainings of people who will be dealing with the victims. So all states, they have a duty also to, to train and sensitize the whole society in order to be able to address these issues. So sometimes, you know, we hear you know, victims are ashamed. We need to work on making sure that they are not the ones that are ashamed, but the perpetrators, because they are the victims. And this is something that needs to be said over and over uh, again, you know, loud and, and clear. I think you just addressed one of the most significant challenges, the shame, the fear of coming forward, you know, the fact that it has taken decades now get one prosecution in Kosovo against these crimes. So tell me a little bit more about those challenges that women have had to overcome in Kosovo and how can they be applied in Ukraine? And one of my biggest fears, and you know, from someone who was in the peacekeeping missions in both Bosnia and Kosovo, uh, I spent five years there. Tanya was there. Uh, you know, we were senior members of the Organization for Security and Cooperation uh, in Europe. Uh, let's just be honest. Men are in charge and they're going to want to focus in on negotiations and how do we bring peace? Maybe that's not peace in the sense of an absence of war. How do we make sure that these crimes are fully prosecuted? and not glossed over for the sake of peace or the absence of war? And how do we make sure women are not victimized? I mean, first of all, I mean, for me, you know, any discussion on peace needs to have an element. It is absolutely crucial. We cannot talk about building peace or achieving, uh, you know, uh, peace during the process of negotiations, which is something that nobody would challenge. I mean, it's needed. It's absolutely important. But being in Ukraine, now there's victims of the rape uh, in, in the former Yugoslavia. There is no peace if there is no justice. There is no peace if those crimes are not investigated. There is no peace if we say, you know, now we are not going to discuss this, put it under the carpet, and, you know, we are now discussing peace and the future. There is no future if justice is not served. Uh, and if the perpetrators of these horrifying crimes are not prosecuted and also exposed, this is also important. And that the messages from the highest level, and you said mostly there are men, but there are women as well, that are reluctant to talk about this. And they are also deciding to be silent when we look at the, these issues, which I think it's uh, also problematic. So victims of these crimes have been failed by justice system in, in the former Yugoslavia most of the time. And uh, the justice was also uh, in the hands of the international uh, community's hands for a very long period of time until recently. And most perpetrators have gone unpunished, as, as, as we know. And we mentioned this one case in, in Kosovo and the first conviction in a case of sexual uh, violence. And victims are losing faith. And they are also um, feeling uh, frustrated that justice will not be served. We should not allow this to happen now. But even with this kind of frustration, there are still possibilities to work with the victims and to make sure that some kind of justice is served. 
Many are also, according to, to uh, you know, many talks I had, many are discouraged by the lack of justice and also the social uh, stigma, and they are reluctant to come forward and report these crimes. This is also a very important step, how to make sure that there is trust there. And according to human rights defenders that are working extraordinary job, and Irina also meant, met, uh, mentioned, sorry, uh, journalists, uh, it is crucial that institutions are working uh, with uh, human rights defenders and with journalists in order to explain also why it is not needed to have headlines with a graphically sort of explained situations of, of you know, those crimes. We should talk about it, but we should also find a way to talk about it, making sure that the dignity of the victims is something that is uh, uh, preserved. So topic, um, you know, of the sexual violence will surely also be addressed in my memorandum that is following uh, the, my visit to Ukraine in early May. There will be other parts, but this particular issue will also be covered and the messages will be very similar to the ones I'm, I'm telling you now. I realize that we are not working uh, enough with the victims because I also heard, for example, in Kosovo that there is a commission for verification. And I immediately said, which kind of verification? Who is going to verify what? Uh, so we need to be careful when we are discussing these things because human rights of all people uh, in this process is, is of a great importance. And that's why I think, you know, in Ukraine, uh, with the work um, that uh, Irina is doing together with the civil society organizations and the help of the international community is on the right way, on the right path. But we should not shy away, you know, if we see that the process is going in a, in a wrong direction uh, or there is nothing happening for all of us to say and to scream if there is a need uh, and say, stop now, you know, this cannot uh, be unpunished. You know, these kind of crimes cannot be pushed away from discussions, even at the highest level, and with the peace is negotiated or whichever sort of high-level meetings are happening uh, around the world in order to, to make sure that we finally see peaceful Ukraine. Any kind of crimes, uh, but this crime in particular, taking into account what happened in the Western Balkans and for how long and this is still ongoing, but for how long uh, this was a topic that was not discussed at all. Now it is in public and there are different views and societies uh, sensitized to this, but it's not enough. So Dunya and Irina, I just want to say both of you give me hope. And Dunya, I just want to point out for people who don't know that you are a citizen of Bosnia and Herzegovina. So you are deeply aware of these atrocities that happened in your country in the 1990s uh, during that destructive war. I wanna thank you both for the work that you're doing and focusing in on, as you all said, making sure that these are not swept under the carpet again, that women and girls will get the justice that they deserve and will work for how do you apply these lessons and move forward so that it doesn't happen again. I can't thank both of you enough in terms of the hope that you're giving the world um, as you work on these issues. So our third guest is senior fellow at AFP, Tanya Domi. Uh, she's professor of international and public affairs at Columbia University's Harriman Institute. 
she really is an expert on these issues. So Tanya, I want you to start off and kind of set the scene and tell us what is the history of prosecuting atrocity crimes related to sexual violence during war? Thanks very much, Liz. And I want to thank both Dunya and Arena for being here. It's very important. It's a, a very weak track record, and we can go back to 1907 with the first Hague Convention that mentions the respect for the dignity of individuals' rights that must be protected, including family honor. So that was in a way into mentioning rape and sexual violence at that time. It was never applied. Fast forward to World War II. You had major, major uh, sexual violence in the South Asian theater by the Japanese, where they use this horrific term, comfort women. What's so tragic about that, Over, it's estimated over 200,000 women were raped and confined, is that some of the last survivors of those crimes have had their claims with the Korean uh, government denied just most recently is last year. So that woman is approximately 93 years old. More than likely, she's going to go to her grave without an opportunity to ever testify. And also, this is coming back up, and the Russians have earned their reputation, honestly, uh, because in the liberation of Berlin during World War II, they raped over 2 million German women, which was not, in fact, prosecuted at Nuremberg. The first jurisprudence to ever be generated on sexual violence during conflict actually occurred first in Rwanda when Akaseyu was a mayor in Rwanda who was actually convicted of rape and genocide. And it's the first time in history that rape was determined to be a component of genocide. That jurisprudence actually was delivered like in 1998. And then we had the process of prosecuting rape under the International War Crimes Tribunal for former Yugoslavia. And in that instance, the court actually advanced prosecutions. They actually charged 70 people. They convicted 32. And rape was determined to be torture. Rape was determined to be a crime against humanity. There was a charge of enslavement with respect to the crimes in Focha in eastern Bosnia. And however, nonetheless, despite the jurisprudence that was generated by Iktar, rape was not convicted under a genocide in Bosnia, which I think was an unfortunate lapse by the prosecutors, because as Arena's discussing just recently the New Lines Institute in Washington, D.C. actually delivered an independent legal analysis of the Russian Federation's breaches of the Genocide Convention in Ukraine. And I actually made a contribution to that report using uh, an example in Kosovo, where it was a report issued by Human Rights Watch that served police and military indicated to women as they are in Ukraine right now that we want to ensure that you never have children again or you never aspire to have children or be with another man again. And then lastly, I want to say that this jurisprudence is 
very important. And just think about the history of the world. This is relatively recent. This jurisprudence was delivered in the late 90s, early 2000s. And since then, we know about the Yazidi women. A law was passed last year in Iraq through the help of one of my colleagues, Sandra Orlovich, who's working there for IOM. And uh, there's now a law on the books to prosecute ISIS fighters for enslavement and trafficking, but the Iraqi government has yet to fund that legislation. So still the victims there are despondent. I just read a recent report this past week uh, affirming exactly what Dunya is talking about without access to justice. There's a great deal of mistrust and despondency. And therefore, it's incumbent that I bring up Kosovo because if there isn't any better example of unfinished business in the Western Balkans, it is in fact in Kosovo, estimated 20,000 rapes. And that was, um, that was actually carried out last year. It's just unbelievable. We're talking about uh, almost 25 years after the war began. and. There's no court to go to, and they're blocked from in terms of international court. So there is a Kosovo chamber, which operates in The Hague and has an office in Kosovo. And uh, in a piece that I wrote for foreign policy earlier this year, we are recommending that the Kosovo chamber jurisdiction be expanded beyond the Dick Marty jurisdiction, which is only KLA fighters, and expand the jurisdiction of that court so that these victims, these survivors, have access to a court. And I think it's imperative, and I look forward to hearing Vera's comments. She's going to follow me on this because I've been supporting the efforts of Kosovar women to have their day in court. So that's essentially a short overview of what has happened and mostly not happened. Thank you, Tanya. That is an excellent overview. So even if you have a court, though, what is needed? Again, even during times of peace, it is difficult to prosecute these cases. You know, look at New York City and, you know, rape kits sat in uh, warehouses. Tell me a couple of the key things mm-hmm. that are needed. I do think that the issue of what uh, Dunya is talking about, resources, Just as an example, this might shock our audience, but the Focha case was prosecuted, but there were other perpetrators. And so you have national war crimes courts in Croatia, Bosnia, and in Serbia. And as a matter of fact, there are perpetrators of the Focha crimes that are now in Montenegro and Bosnia actually transferred the case to Montenegro, and they have indicated that they're going to prosecute that case. Can you imagine? This is, a, this is more than 30 years. So you yeah. think about the resources for that. So I've actually mentioned, I've had a conversation with Dunya about this and also the Council of Europe rep in Belgrade about what kind of resources could be afforded to Montenegro so they can effectively bring this case. And I think, you know, the gender sensitivity, 
that that arena is talking about. Those court uh, prosecutors have to be trained in how to interview uh, victims uh, so that they're not re-traumatized. And I would also say that the courts need to be properly resourced to bring these cases, including the judges and the prosecutors being effectively trained and also having psychosocial services available to these witnesses when they are participating in the um, legal process. I'm going to stop here for a second because Arena has uh, told us that she needs to go. So uh, Arena, is there anything else you would like to say um, before you have to sign off? I'm very appreciated that you asked about every possibilities. What do you have for you ask about this? Please be with us, stand with us, look uh, at our fighting that actually and about our common values. I think that only with uh, this common support, we can fight such huge evil. What we have now is actually absolutely a normal, not modern situation when civilized world fight with barbarian world. And I think that our values of democratic society should win, and we will win absolutely. Of course, we need to do it as fast as possible, because every day and every night we lost our civilians, we lost militaries, we will have more and more cases about war crimes. Of course, we need your support. We need your support, as we mentioned, to, uh, to work on the ground with professional possibility support with financial support. For example, our common hub for gathering evidences, which we use, ICC will use Ministry of Foreign Affairs, in ICJ court will use Ministry of Justice, will use in uh, Strasbourg court. Of course, we need modern soft, which should analyze all this information what we have and interceptions and satellite images and a huge number of statements from um, our citizens for the video fixation and others. That's why it's a very important job and of course the, these products are expensive and without support of international partners we will do this job during years and years by uh, so, so we can do it during weeks, actually. That's why I think we're, we're on the one page and uh, I'm open every time I will be ready to answer all questions. I will be ready to host you in safe Kiev, in safe other regions and be in touch. And we'll do our job, as previous speakers mentioned. Unfortunately, these figures of sexual crimes terrible in other countries. We have this in history. We see these long processes. We see uh, how difficult to uh, stop, to investigate, to punish, to protect, to prevent. It's extremely difficult, but it's extremely important because it is a question of our future generation. And we should save our values. We should save our societies, we should save our soils and hearts only because we need normal, happy future for generations. Thank you very much for this platform, for your expertise, for your experience. And again, I want to thank you for your souls, for your hearts, and for your support. Irina, thank you so much. Please stay safe and continue this incredible work. Thank you very much. Be in touch. Bye. So, Tanya, 
Can I just ask you one additional question? Has the attitude of the international community shifted since Rwanda and the Balkans? And what more could we be doing? Well, it's a good question. And there has been movement. And I have to give some credit to William Hague, former prime minister of the UK, uh, who took up sexual violence during the G7 several years ago. And now the UK has embraced what's called the Murad principles uh, based upon uh, the work of Nadia Murad, who survived uh, the Yazidis, and she was awarded the Nobel Laureate for Peace two years ago and has established the Global Fund for uh, Sexual Violence Survivors. I have recently, uh, with Vera, I met with members of the House Foreign Affairs Committee on the situation in Kosovo, and I've really pushed the members to ask the United States, to press the United States government to actually take a lead here, and that we have a historical partnership with the United Kingdom, and in particular, that partnership in the former Yugoslavia is a very strong one, and the UK's returned there, I think, in doing some really good work on basic democracy 101, but I would like to see the United States of America leverage their leadership and their resources on this issue. And I would like to see the administration start calling out these crimes from every appropriate podium in the executive branch. And I, I, I actually spoke to Congresswoman uh, Abigail Spanberger about this issue, that we need to be calling this out. And I think a good partnership would be, in fact, between the United States and the United Kingdom. But it is true. There is now acknowledgement by a lot of people in different capitals, in Brussels, in Washington and uh, Dunia's work at the Council of Europe, that there's a recognition that this is an intolerable crime. It must be addressed. And it's time now for all those people and stakeholders that are about defending democracy, that we start defending and prosecuting the assailants of these victims. We're talking about millions of people millions. And this affects actually women. women and actually men too, men yes. and boys. The, the first case in ICTI was Dusko Tadic, who was in fact sexually tortured. And, you know, it's really interesting that we never talked about that when we started talking about the case. Everybody just sort of glossed over that. But now men in Bosnia have come forward. There have been a number of men that have come forward. And it's clear that there's a correlation between detainment. The longer you're detained, the more likely you're going to be sexually tortured. So irrespective of your your, uh, gender. So all I want to say is that this is a time for people to lead. This is a time for Western countries and all of us who say that we want democracy, we're going to defend democracy. Well, let's defend the people in the democracy that have been harmed, and we should do everything we can. And the United States has the resources and the know-how on how to do this. We, you know, under Hillary Clinton's leadership, there was an advance on victims of trafficking and um, the whole issue of women, peace and security, which Liz, you and I know, or we're very conversant on that on 1325 and the architecture out of the UN on this issue, the SRSG for sexual violence, Pramelia Patton did make a visit to 
Ukraine, and her office has provided investigators. And so every institution, the Council of Europe, the, you know, the United Nations, the United States government, the United Kingdom, there's all these governments, they need to pony up now and deliver for these victims. I think you said that incredibly well. And I just want to add that the Women, Peace and Security law that was adopted by Congress needs to be implemented and can help address this. You know, under the Obama administration, we had to fight too hard to get the war crimes against Azidi women to be called war crimes, to be called genocide. So there's a lot of collective action that has to happen because even when these laws are on the books, they don't get implemented. So this leads me to our final guest, Vera, who is the co-founder and leader of the Rally for Her Justice, an advocacy group on behalf of Kosovar women and sexual violence survivors. So we talked about this, you know, nearly four years ago, Vera, you co-founded the Rally for Her Justice, and it was to look at sexual violence during the Kosovar War with Serbia. Again, we talked about there was estimates of about 20,000 women who were raped during this war. Justice has been denied. Can you talk a little bit about the mission of Rally for Her Justice? What are some of the successes you've had? And what are still the challenges that you still face to get justice for survivors? Well, thank you very much, Liz, for the opportunity to discuss such an important topic as uh, sexual violence. And I wanted to thank my dear friend, Tanya, who has been uh, by our side throughout this uh, movement. Unfortunately, whenever conflicts arise anywhere in the world, women especially become inevitably part of, of these conflicts. And uh, that's what happened uh, during the war in Kosovo. Uh, and uh, we spearheaded this whole movement uh, based on the experience of the only survivor who has uh, spoken out publicly about her experience, Vasfia Krasnitsha Goodman. At the age of 16, she was abducted by a, a Serb uh, police officer and another civilian and, and raped. Although that uh, she did all the right things and reported her case to the local French K4, the United Nations Mission in Kosovo later, the European Rule of Law Mission in Kosovo, as well as uh, the local authorities and the justice system in Kosovo, unfortunately, all of the above instances have uh, failed her in, in the quest for justice. And uh, Rally for Her Justice came about as a movement so to amplify her voice and, and raise awareness against the unpunished war crimes and sexual violence during the war in Kosovo. I started working with Vaspi about four years ago in another campaign that uh, we called Four Heroines, a campaign to empower survivors and uh, basically to fight the stigma and shame and start the public conversation in Kosovo among um, you know, students and uh, other segments of the population that it's okay to talk about sexual war crimes and, and violence. Since then, we have continued our efforts uh, rallying support of, of the Albanian-American community, especially into organizing rallies in New York City and Washington, D.C. Uh, we've had forums and exhibits uh, to raise awareness and address the impunity and, and injustice. The conflicts in Ukraine, um, I believe, have shown that history repeats itself. And, and if we don't draw lessons from the past, the same things will happen and repeat. To bring this issue back and rally for awareness, last month in, in partnership with the prestigious Simon Weisenthal Center, we also co-hosted an event in New York City addressing violence and rape as a weapon of war through the incredible photographs of uh, Marissa Roth, one woman crying women at war. We saw vivid images again of survivors from Kosovo and around the world. 
And through testimonies of an incredible panel uh, that uh, Tanya was also part of, we're able to address the many aspects of, of, uh, of rape as a weapon of war. I know that you're going to be asking me this again about the resolution, but I mean, uh, the awareness is the piece where we're focusing. I think we can't stress enough that we have to discuss and we have to share these stories. Anytime we do this, we empower survivors and we bring this back into, uh, into the focus of, of either governments, the international community, and so much more. So your work is so inspirational because it's, you know, it's what Tanya talked about. This war happened decades ago in Kosovo. And, you know, trying to get justice decades later is already an incredible challenge. So you mentioned it. Recently, Congressman uh, Colin Alred of Texas introduced U.S. House Resolution 34, and you strongly advocated for this resolution. Can you tell us what is it about? How does it address sexual violence in Kosovo and globally, including Ukraine? So uh, I have to correct you a little bit. It's House Congressional 94. Oh, um, 94. Yeah. Um, but uh, yes, uh, the first step, I believe, leading to, the, to this was a testimony that Ms. Krasnichi Goodman had uh, before the Committee on Foreign Affairs of the House Representatives on uh, April 30th in 2019 in a hearing titled Kosovo's Wartime Victims, the Quest for Justice where for the first time, uh, Ms. Vasvia Krasnici shared her story with members of Congress. Then in October 2021, we continued with several meet and greets with members of Congress, as well as uh, leader Chuck Schumer. And we're proud that through our advocacy, countless meetings with members and sharing Vasvia's story on her behalf and on the behalf of the 20,000 survivors of Fight for Justice, a resolution in her name has now been introduced, as well as, you know, a resolution against rape as a weapon of war. About two weeks before introduction, we had a meet and greet hosted by Congressman Allred, rallying support for the resolution. And we were grateful for Tanya's support and her leadership uh, at this meeting. And the introduction, I believe it's an important step in the long fight for justice. Um, we're continuing to rally support so it can pass foreign affairs and the House before it gets introduced in the Senate. The horrible images and news coming from Ukraine um, are also a vivid reminder that rape remains an, an unacceptable weapon of war. And, and as such, the resolution sends a message to the world that uh, there are consequences for committing crimes and atrocities. As an Albanian American, I'm also very proud that our representative in the Security Council, Ambassador Ferit Hoxha, is continuously addressing and condemning the situation in Ukraine and the growing evidence of, of sexual violence. He has reiterated the call for detailed investigation that uh, accountability cannot be an option, but it should be a must, and that the documentation of these cases should remain a priority in a manner that strengthens the accountability mechanism that empowers the survivors. This was uh, lessons that were drawn from Kosovo, unfortunately, during a different time. Not a lot of cases were well documented, and there was a lack of social media and a lack of uh, coverage by, uh, you know, by reporters and international journalists, which is quite uh, the opposite now with Ukraine. And I just want to say these crimes are horrific, but I just want to focus in on how far prosecution of these crimes has come. Tanya talked about it, you know, going back into the 90s before Rwanda, it wasn't a thing. And where we've come we have a lot more to go. 
again, your and Tanya's work is incredibly inspirational and critical at this time. So Tanya and Vera, can I just ask you, because this is such a hard topic, right? And people might leave this podcast and be just overwhelmed. So I really want to focus in on what can people do and what else needs to get done? Vera, you should go first. Thank you. I have to note uh, that uh, after the resolution was uh, introduced, we also visited Kosovo and uh, met with uh, survivors, advocates, and also members of of the government. Apart from discussing uh, the legal aspects of of the resolution, we also discussed the importance of a sound and a just judicial system. There seems to be stagnation in prosecution in Kosovo. There's a a hurdle, and uh, I believe that that should be the first step of the government to um, to start figuring out on how these cases can move forward and how these individuals can be prosecuted. We also spoke about uh, the need for sensitive training, specialized prosecutors, and a survivor center approach to empower the survivors and, and address the, the stigmatization. I believe that we have a, a long way ahead of us, um, and uh, I'm, I'm thankful for uh, Tanya's cooperation and all the survivor groups as we move this resolution ahead and uh, you know figure out within the system or outside of the system on how can we get uh, justice uh, not only for Vaspia Krasnichi Goodman but um, also f- to give hope to the twenty thousand women and it's encouraging for these women to hear us talk every time we mention and every time we share stories. So I would encourage everyone to um, just, you know, share these um, horrific stories. And then uh, in the United States, reach out to their member of Congress and ask them to support um, this very important resolution. Resolution 94. Yes. Just to be clear. Resolution 94. And I would like to share a story that goes to show that there is really no borders to these issues and that we should really speak up and stand up wherever we are. About two months ago, a member of the Ukrainian parliament, uh, her name is Lesia Vasilienko, she shared on social media a video of a necklace that was made by survivors of sexual violence in Kosovo, a gift that was uh, gifted to her from a colleague, stating that Little did she suspect that in a few weeks after the war broke in Ukraine, they would be faced with the same horrific testimonies of Ukrainian women and girls being raped, abused and and executed. And uh, with Tanya and uh, Vasvia and uh, the women survivors, we were able to share some of these uh, pieces of jewelry with members of Congress, referring not only to Kosovo, but also Ukraine and Bosnia and Iraq and, um, and elsewhere. In the end, as in the case of Kosovo and Ukraine, I I believe women are showing to be not merely victims in conflict, um, but they're they're carrying heavy burdens. You know, they're they're trying to pick up and build up their families and, um, you know, fighting for justice and and peace building and advocacy. So um, I just really wanted to thank you for for all you do and, you know, the critical work of, of your organization. I think it's it's very important to keep the conversation going, and and I believe that everyone has a role. Uh, and if we all amplify our voices, uh, it's a very important step to 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 justice. That was all very well said, and and the story of the jewelry will stay with me. Tanya, 
Yes, thank you so much. I, I just want to add a couple of things. One of the things that stands in the way of the victims, we see this across the Balkans and we're seeing it by the Russian leadership, is complete denial of crimes. Genocide denial permeates this crime. The leadership in Serbia refuses to take responsibility for the acts of the previous Serbian government in Kosovo. They deny the crimes that took place in Bosnia. And um, the same thing we're seeing by Putin. There's a complete denial from him down through his chain of command of all these crimes, these horrific crimes, these crimes of genocide now taking place in Ukraine. They have to be called out. And uh, I agree with Vera that there has to be accountability. Without accountability, this is going to continue. And so accountability, bringing the perpetrators to justice is absolutely vital as a way to break the cycle of violence against women and women's bodies everywhere in the world. So we saw Germany just last year convict a ISIS fighter, not for sexual crimes, but indeed did in fact convict uh, this, this uh, individual for his crimes, his war crimes. And I do think, um, as Arena has mentioned, there's actually about nine governments have already said they want to prosecute crimes in Ukraine. And so I think there's going to be a more move to national governments, national courts doing these prosecutions. And I think that Europe has a responsibility here and the appropriate institutions to help these national courts bring cases because there's so many crimes and there aren't enough courts. And so I think access to courts and access to justice has to be prioritized And uh, as Vera has pointed out, that's been a slow process in Kosovo. And the fact that the KLA court in The Hague is only to prosecute uh, the leadership of the Kosovo Liberation Army is an unfortunate economic decision that doesn't yield justice to, you know, 20,000 women who haven't had a day in court. So I, I agree with uh, Vera on, on keeping the conversation going, keeping it visible. And um, I hope that AFP can support the Rally for Her Justice on the House resolution, and maybe we can actually publicize it and we can publish it when we publish the podcast. And I just want to also commend Dunia. Uh, she's in the Council of Europe. She has a major platform and uh, Dunya, you're, you're the highest ranking Bosnian diplomat in the world. You're a great voice. You're a great advocate. And I know you're going to make them feel it in the council. So Dunya, I'd like you to answer that question in terms of what should people be doing? I think we are already um, doing a lot in, in a sense, you know, the silence, we, we, we broke the silence. Um, which is uh, quite different than decades uh, ago. This is an issue that, uh, you know, we want to be, uh, you know, very much uh, discussed at different fora, including academia. But this is also an issue that brings a lot of energy to all of us if we can see that we are helping, that we are really doing something uh, that... uh, 
is helping the victims, but also the organizations, amazing organizations and individuals trying to expose those crimes. Uh, so I think for Ukrainian women, it's uh, particularly important to feel this um, solidarity, to feel that they are not alone and they will be not left alone. If you look at the rape as, as, as a weapon of war in the former Yugoslavia, women there you know, felt abandoned, left alone. Um, and uh, now they are speaking up. They are not ashamed to talk about this and to demand uh, justice. During my recent, uh, you know, mission to Kosovo that I already mentioned, I met uh, with some fantastic uh, uh, group of uh, you know, uh, women, um, human rights defenders, uh, some of them medical uh, professionals, and they have been helping victims of these crimes to, to rebuild their lives and overcome uh, the stigma because we are often forgetting that they need to, to, to start over and over again. This is not something that you can just tick a box and continue living normal life. It stays with you. It stays with your surrounding. It stays with your family, with the society as a whole. And that's why in order to at least try to heal those wounds at least a bit, we need to be receptive and, and we need to also create a situation where we trust the victims. We trust their stories. We trust what they want to, to tell us. Otherwise, you know, uh, it is going to be extremely difficult to work on these issues. And when it comes to my work, I can only assure you that I'll use my voice and, and all the tools I have at my disposal to address these issues, to really talk about it openly and freely, to call for the accountability, for making sure that the victims are protected, their privacy, their dignity, because this is extremely important. And already next week, I will have a very good opportunity when there is a parliamentary assembly session at the Council of Europe. There will be an event uh, organized uh, in order to discuss the topic of sexual violence in Ukraine. But of course, nowadays, we cannot talk uh, about this without bringing into discussion a picture on what happened to, to women in former Yugoslavia. And um, just last week, I brought amazing NGOs and activists from uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina, from Kosovo, from Serbia, from Croatia, together with Ukrainian NGOs working in and outside Ukraine to talk, to connect, to build network, to be stronger, and to make sure that in this discussion, we also have real professionals, medical doctors, and to make sure that an issue of uh, access to sexual and reproductive health and rights is also on the topic of these discussions. Because in most of the cases I had to deal with and the stories I listened, this was an issue that was mentioned to me. In different countries in Europe, you have different problems when it comes to women's rights, in particular access to sexual and reproductive health and rights. So it's a lot of work, but extremely important work. And as Irina said, it is for the future generations. They will judge us on what we were able to uh, look at and what we were able to achieve, particularly women and girls. Thank you so much, Dunya. Just a couple of closing points to wrap it up. Prevention. Don't just say it happened two decades ago in the Balkans and we need to move on. Tanya brought up an incredible point about what 
the Russian soldiers did in World War II. They were not prosecuted in Nuremberg. And if you have to go back two decades, we have to go back if we want to make sure that we prevent it from happening again. Demand that donors resource the documentation needed in real time and prosecute the cases now. Don't wait until after the war is over, as we've seen before. Diversity of leadership matters. It's leaders like you, Dunya and Irina, who are demanding this justice and leading this way. So I can't thank you enough. I can't thank Tanya and Vera's leadership enough and so many other incredible women and also the survivors that are telling these stories and demanding justice as well. This wouldn't be happening without them. So the Alliance for Peacebuilding, 100% is behind this work. We will be promoting um, and advocating for Resolution uh, 94, and we'll be focusing in on these really critical issues we have, and we will continue. So thank you to everyone. Thanks for tuning into the Peace We Build It podcast. And thanks to our guests, Irina Vinodiktova, the Ukraine State Prosecutor, Dunya Miratovich, the Commissioner for Human Rights, Council of Europe, Tanya Domi, Senior Fellow Alliance for Peacebuilding and Adjunct Professor of International and Public Affairs, Columbia University, and Vera Maiku, co-founder and co-leader of the Rally for Her Justice. The Peace We Build It podcast is made possible through the financial support of the Alliance for Peacebuilding based in Washington, D.C. Tanya Domi is the host and Senior Fellow for Communications at the Alliance for Peacebuilding, and Kevin Wolf, the audio engineer, provides technical assistance. This podcast can be found on Spotify, Apple, and where all podcasts are found.